Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Critical Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. Um, I have not done this in quite a while, so I realized with so many new viewers, I mean, my, the subscribers on my channel just kind of are steadily going up, 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 up. That's how it's been for quite some time, and I'm, I'm more than happy about that. And welcome everybody who is new to my channel and new to the critical thinking experience that I offer here. And um, But I realize it's been months since I have actually overtly plugged my book. And, you know, if you're coming to my channel to get questions, to get answers to your questions, a lot of them are in this book, a lot of those answers that you're looking for. This is Scientology A to Xenu, uh, an insider's guide to what Scientology is really all about. And it is not a memoir of my experiences in Scientology. It is a critical analysis of the entire subject. Uh, and there's a lot of really good information in here, including a whole breakdown on L. Ron Hubbard, on uh, how Scientology presents itself to the world, on why it is a uh, destruction is in its DNA and it is, it is a self-destroying uh, group or entity. Um, it, there's a whole thing in here about L. Ron Hubbard. There is probably the most thorough breakdown of the OT levels anywhere uh, given here in this book, uh, why, Scientologists, why Scientologists think that they're actually saving the universe or saving the world and what clearing the planet is and all those funny little phrases that the Scientologists use. And um, of course there's a whole breakdown in here as well on the purification rundown and on the tax exemption and how the church got tax exemption and has managed to hold on to it as well as three chapters on recovering from Scientology, uh, really just from my own experience in that. So anyway, just wanted to let you guys know it's available out there on Amazon uh, as an audiobook, as an ebook, and as a uh, hard copy uh, edition of the book. So you can uh, check it out there. Links are below every week in the description to my videos. So that all being said and that plug over, let's go ahead and answer some questions now. Marcus G. You mentioned in the Bridge to Nowhere videos that from talking to other OT8s, they have confirmed there are no other levels to be offered after OT8. First, as much as I agree with the fact that they are milking people for more money and fundraising and saying there aren't enough staff to deliver any other levels, there has been a talk about introducing levels 9 and 10 for the past many years. From working for them before, do you know if in fact these levels, especially OT9 called orders of magnitude and OT10 called character, are just made up? All right, well, I'm not sure that I said that there, that I had talked to a bunch of OT8s and they told me there was no OT9 and 10, because that's not how we know that, that there's no OT9 and 10. The story actually goes back to uh, some books put out by Marty Rathbun and uh, stories that have been told or uh, verified or corroborated from uh, those where the, the idea was that, um, the, the history on this is that when L. Ron Hubbard died, there was a guy named Pat Broker who was a, a CMO messenger, uh, you know, an aide to Hubbard who was working for him. And he was uh, on stage at the event where L. Ron Hubbard's death was announced. And he said that there were these other OT levels all the way up, you know, and I don't think he even set up to OT 15. He just said there were more OT levels that Hubbard had written out and they needed to do all the compilation of those levels and, and make them available for public delivery. Now at that time, OT 8 had not yet been released. So that level was the next level released. And that's been the only OT level released since 
since L. Ron Hubbard died. So there was this idea in all of Scientology, because Pat Broker had made this announcement on stage, that there were other OT levels coming. There was even another event later where it was announced that they even had a special uh, e-meter or device that could register a thetan or a spiritual entity who had exteriorized from the body and was doing auditing uh, activities outside of the body and this special device you know that I think they showed a picture of one time but I I've never seen or heard anything about it since um, anyway this device is, was supposedly existed and this was all just tease 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 from the from the church right they were just teasing the public and getting them to pay 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 for more services in the anticipation of eventually getting these next OT levels um, in fact I think this was actually the time period where it was also announced or made known that OT 1 through 7 were the pre OT levels they were not true OT levels. They were levels that were being done to prepare you for the real OT levels, which started with OT8, Truth Revealed. Okay, And this OT8 was supposed to be the first level there was, where there was going to be positive spiritual gain, is how this was explained, right? And OTs 1 through 7 were all about negative gain, where you were taking things away from the person, stresses, traumas, whatever, kind of just like in the lower OT level or the lower grades of the Scientology, you are you know, erasing things from the reactive mind is, is the idea. You're taking things away from the person and uh, stress, trauma, this sort of thing connected with these past incidents. And, uh, and so OT8 was going to be positive gain for the Thetan, and the rest of the OT levels were going to follow. Okay, so the story gets told that Pat Broker has these levels, has all of L. Ron Hubbard's notes and worksheets and, and, and directions on what to do, and they're all in, these, in a, a, a one or two file cabinets that he had in his possession. So uh, sometime in the late 80s, or uh, you know, after Miscavige had taken power in 87, uh, he arranged with Marty Rathman and some others a raid on Pat Broker's file cabinets, and they got hold of these file cabinets, and they stole them from Pat Broker, and uh, where, where he had them secured or squirreled away, and they found out, yeah, there's nothing really in them. Uh, there are no other OT levels. And then the other aspect of this was there was a man named Ray Midoff. He is still around, as far as I know, at, the, at Int Management. He was the Senior CS International, Senior Case Supervisor International, the, the highest technical authority in Scientology. Uh, and the person who was supposed to oversee all technical, you know, any further technical developments and the delivery of Scientology worldwide. That was the buck stopped with him. Well, he's been, you know, sort of demoted, taken off his job, uh, run through the hole like everybody else. We haven't heard from Raymond off in years and years and years. But yet, back in the 80s this, and the, through the 90s, this was the job that he had. And apparently... Uh, so as the story goes, this is all you know, hearsay, secondhand, whatever, however you want to describe it. Uh, he had received some kind of personal direction from Hubbard of some kind, and had forgotten, just forgot it. You know, couldn't remember what Hubbard had said, and it wasn't like Hubbard had described all the OT levels to him. He just gave him some, you know, direction regarding the next levels or what to do, and he 
you know, bumbled it and fumbled it or somehow messed it up. And Miscavige just ruthlessly would, would, would rip into him over this, uh, just mercilessly. And, uh, and that, of course, didn't help Miss, you know, Midoff to, to remember any of this. So those two things are the only pieces of information that have come across my plate regarding these next OT levels and the fact that they simply don't exist. Hubbard never wrote them. So there's nothing there to compile or put together or figure out because uh, just, it's just a big vacuum. There's just nothing there. It is, I've been asked and it's been conjectured, well, why doesn't Miscavige just put something together himself and release them? And, that's, and there's no reason why Miscavige couldn't do that. Since nobody knows what the levels consist of, he can make up anything he wants. And maybe, eventually, he will. But the other thing Scientologists were told is that these upper OT levels, OT 9 and 10 specifically, are not going to be released until every church, every organization, every Scientology church on the planet is the size of Old St. Hill, which is a, an expectation of, um, or sorry, it's a target that's been set of, of, of how big the place is. It has to have so many staff. It has to be viable. In other words, it has to be above the make break point. It has to be producing on its own. No, no, you know, it's not being subsidized in any way. It's able to pay its staff. You know, in other words, it's a, it's a, it's a good, thriving, operating organization. And um, kind of says something that, that no Scientology churches in the world right now uh, are St. Hill size, right? There, there are a couple that were called that at one point, and then, it, then they sort of, you know, they, they'd expanded, got the expansion going, you know, statistics up, and then crashed, right? And, oh boy, you know, and never got it back. So uh, they're just fumbling along, you know, with their, with their production. Um, most of these organizations have maybe at most 50 people coming around on a weekly basis to do services. A St. Hill size church is supposed to have something on the order of four or 500 people. Uh, it's supposed to have like 100 to 200 staff. It's supposed to be delivering a thousand plus well done auditing hours. In other words, the counseling hours, the auditing hours. If you were going to, you know, how many hours of that were delivered in a week period? Uh, you know, if in a week's time, it should be a thousand hours. Okay, well, I don't know any, any churches that are producing at that level uh, other than FLAG, the, the FLAG service organization in, in Clearwater, Florida, which is not part of this whole St. Hill size thing, right? We're talking about city-level churches like Denver, Milano, New York, Los Angeles, right? These places. So they're all supposed to achieve this the size, they're supposed to be a particular size and they're supposed to be delivering well and they're supposed to be delivering a lot, right? And until they do, until they're all, every church from Keokuk to, uh, to Milano to, to the one they just opened in Ireland, all these churches are supposed to be St. Hill size. Then and only then will OT 9 and 10 be released. Miscavige has said this many times. He said also very specifically that it was an L. Ron Hubbard directed target that needed to be met. That it wasn't on him. He wasn't the one who made that target up. Hubbard did. So that's another reason why Miscavige has been putting off 
releasing OT9 and 10. And so they tease about it and tease about it. And, and what they release, or what you might have caught wind of at one point, was when they talk about the prerequisites for OT9 and 10. And this has happened about four times that Miscavige has said, okay, in order to get everybody ready for 9 and 10, you got to do this and this and this and this. And then, you know, five years later, it changes. Oh no, now it's this and this and this, right? And another five years later, oh no, actually everybody needs to, all the OT8s uh, need to go to the ship and they need to do this and this and this in order to get ready for 9 and 10, right? And they just trot these prerequisites out every now and again when they feel like needing more, you know, they need to squeeze more money out of the OT8s and, uh, and that's how they go about doing it, okay? So it's, you know, it's just this kind of going nowhere, hamster wheel to nowhere sort of thing. And uh, that's why you know, everything I've told you and my entire answer to this question is why I believe that there is no OT 9 and 10 or any more OT levels. I could be wrong. There could be a file cabinet that has all of them in it, all fully developed, fully written out, ready to go, right? But they haven't been released. And no one who has come out of the church has ever said anything about having seen anything like that. So we all pretty much believe that they don't exist. And that's the answer to the question. Chuck Beatty, can you answer a question on an upcoming Q&A about the YTRs movie, the one on the St. Hill Special Briefing course, which Isaac Hayes narrates? I have long believed that movie's concepts get no discussion. LRH makes the point that the class sixes need to have in memory the principles for their future lives on other planets when they find themselves sometime in a future life on a decayed civilization and they have to get Scientology going there on their own. Okay, Chuck, well, there was a little Scientologies in that question, but the idea here is that there, uh, L. Ron Hubbard wrote scripts for and had made a number of films. These were called the technical training films. And there's a bunch of them in Scientology. And there are films that teach how to use an e-meter. And there are films that teach how to do TRs. And TRs are about communication, how to communicate better, uh, how to do counseling, how to do the auditing, right? Uh, in Scientology. And so the, uh, one of the films that was made was called Why TRs? In other words, how come we have TRs? Why are they so important? TRs stands for training routines um, or training regimens, and they are the drills that Scientologists do in order to learn or improve their communication skills or their ability to control things. We've, we've talked about TRs uh, a lot on this show and in my channel, so uh, and you can look those up if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Um, the film that Chuck is asking about here was made by, uh, scripted by L. Ron Hubbard and made later after he died. And it was, and the idea was, what if you are a Scientologist and you get, you know, the reason why you need to get trained as a Scientologist, that you need to read all the books, listen to all the lectures, get, you know, thoroughly uh, expert at becoming an auditor in Scientology, right, a counselor. The reason for that is because Hubbard said that the training that you learn stays with you after your life. You know, after this life is over, you'll remember these things. And you've got to remember it. You've got to know it so well that you will remember it. Because the premise of the film is you could wake up or you, can, you, know, you could die here 
and you could wake up on another planet, you know, in another body, you know, grow, you know, as a baby and grow up in some other civilization that never had L. Ron Hubbard connected to it, never had anything like Scientology, it might even be a primitive culture as far as its technology goes. What are you going to do? Right? Here you are, and you're a Scientologist, and you remember your past life in Scientology, and you remember the information, and you got audited, so you're OT or whatever, right? You have all these magical spiritual awarenesses and abilities, but you're stuck. You're the only guy in this whole world who has any clue about any of this stuff. So what are you going to do? So that's the premise of the film, and then the film proceeds to answer that question by showing there's an actor who's a boy, he's like, you know, 12 or 13 years old, playing this person, this reincarnated Scientologist, and he, and the whole film is done in another language, too, it's not even in English, right, there are subtitles, and, um, and he's in this other planet, and he is, uh, you know, telling people about this, you know, these, these, uh, this technology, Scientology, and he and Hubbard said you have to know the TRs because you have to start a communications course uh, there because that's what succeeds. That's what that's what that's what people want to know about, and that's what people will sign up for, and that's how you get them started. So you have to know how to do these TRs really good, so you can teach them to others, and also you're going to have to come up with an e-meter too. So you're going to have to figure that out, right? So you better understand how an e-meter works because you might end up having to have somebody make one for you so that you can get auditing going on this other planet, right? Because you can't get to the highest levels of Scientology if you don't have an e-meter. So they literally show in this film this kid talking to some scientist, electronic type guy who's putting together an e-meter for him, right? Uh, using that planet's technology and tools. So, um, so that's the premise of the film, and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting. Not too many people saw the film because it was, it, as Chuck said in this question, it's only delivered, the film is only viewable if you're doing this massive high-level course called the St. Hill Special Briefing Course or the Class 6 course. And that course isn't even delivered right now. It hasn't been uh, delivered in a couple of years. They've kind of put it you know, on the shelf right now and they're not even delivering it as far as we know. I, I, I could be wrong about that as I sit here saying this, but to the best of my knowledge, they're not delivering that course. It's a course that takes about a year to get through if you do it full time. It's big. It's a full review of, of all the materials of Scientology. So, um, so not all Scientologists by a long shot have even seen this film or know anything about it. So it's not talked about a whole lot. And a lot of Scientologists kind of wondered, you know, what's going to happen if they kick it and, and, you know, kick off and die and what are they supposed to do? And this film is supposed to answer that question for them. So you'd think more Scientologists would have seen these films, but, uh, but they, they keep a lot of those films under lock and key. So anyway, that's a little bit about that film that you might find of interest. Gordon Weir. Hi, Chris. It seems that Scientology has more than its share of divorces. Being separated by work schedules, one spouse being sent to another location, spouse sent to the RPF, spouses at different levels, a spouse blowing. It seems that the church at times encourages divorce. What is your take? It also seems some marriages survive despite Scientology's best efforts. 
Well, you nailed it, Gordon. Yeah, there are a lot of divorces in Scientology, especially in the C organization, which is where you're going to find most of the examples of, of, of what you were describing there happen. I've met Sea Org members who were separated from their spouses for years because they were off, you know, like I knew a woman who came from Australia to Los Angeles to do a training and uh, some, do some classes. She was going to, you know, be gone for like a couple months. And literally three years later, she had not seen her kids. She had not seen her husband. She was Sea Org too. I mean, she had children back in Australia. This was back in the late 80s when, when kids were still around on Sea Org bases. And, um, uh, and being raised by them, they weren't, they weren't kicking the Sea Org members out yet. So, uh, and I felt really bad for this lady. I mean, and sometimes she would just break down into tears right in the middle of the classroom because she'd be getting upset about, you know, not getting through, not getting through, not getting through these classes and internship that she was doing. And she was just, just languishing there in LA. I mean, it was just, it was awful. She was stuck there. And, uh, and I felt really bad for her. You know, this was back before I joined the Sea Org and I, I saw that happening and I thought, that's, that's screwed up. At the same time, I also thought, well, she's Sea Org, she's there on her own willingness. You know what I mean? I wouldn't put up with that, but I guess some people are that dedicated. And of course, you know, seven years later, I joined the Sea Org and I'm just as foolishly doing the exact same things. Um, anyway, yeah, so, uh, so if it gets to the point where the, the, the decision point on whether a divorce should happen or not is whether it's somehow, if the marriage is somehow interfering with church operations or it's, it's become such a problem or an issue for the person that, you know, they, that is somehow interfering with their job, okay? That's when, that's when and, and if it does, if it in any way interferes with your duties or, or ability to get products or, you know, produce whatever you're supposed to be producing, uh, then the Sea Org is going to encourage a divorce, right? They're going to be like, well, okay, screw that, right? Get, get ixnay on the divorce, right? On the marriage. And, uh, and it'll be encouraged, right? To, and like, let's say, for example, this woman who was there for training all that time, well, she was eventually supposed to go back, yet she was there for so long that somebody, you know, in the, the Los Angeles side might have went, you know, we actually want to post her out here. So let's get her to divorce her husband, and uh, I don't know, the kids will sort themselves out, and, uh, and let's, let's get that happening, right? And then she might be, you know, if somebody made that decision, and then that decision was approved by a more senior personnel person, uh, you know, overseeing the distribution of personnel, I guess you'd say the human resources people, we don't call it, they didn't call it that in Scientology, but, but basically HR it gives their blessing, then this woman who was there for training for three years might find herself in a room being sat down and told, hey, we're going to actually repost you here and you need to divorce your husband. And, you know, blow up and handle and, and deal with all of her, uh, you know, upset over that and, uh, and get her to agree to do that. Right? I've, I've seen that happen. I didn't see that happen with her, but I've seen that happen with other people, right? Uh, for the reasons you laid out in your question, right? Different people at different levels of Scientology, hierarchy of management, or uh, some, you know, any situation that might present itself where uh, Sea Org operations are being uh, harmed or, or fettered or, or in some, some fashion or another are being interfered with by the marriage. The marriage is the thing that's going to go. 
Now, there are the exceptional people in Scientology and the Sea Org who uh, are truly in love with their spouse more than they're in love with the Sea Org. And they're not going to bow down or kowtow to any kind of suggestion or hint that they get divorced. They're going to be like, yeah, I don't think so. And ultimately, it really is up to them. Um, there, I, now, I will say that's in the, at the lower levels of the Sea Org. At the upper levels, I couldn't speak to that. Because if Miscavige came along or some other very senior person came along and said, David Miscavige ordered that you get divorced... Okay, that's a little bit of a different situation from the scenario I just presented to you where, you know, some, where this lower level thing is going on, okay? I can, I, the, the amount of pressure that would be brought to bear on somebody if Miscavige ordered the divorce to happen would be quite intense. And um, the Headleys are an example of, of a couple who, Mark and Claire Headley, who overcame that and, uh, and, and did not bow to that kind of pressure and ended up taking off as a result. So, uh, so you have different results, you know, things turn out differently for various couples depending on the dynamics of their relationship and how much they love each other, you know. So, um, you know, I went to the RPF when I was in the Sea Org, um, and I went to the RPF for out-to-D, in other words, for, you know, for sexual misconduct, right? And um, a lot of people, a lot of people who went to the RPF ended up divorcing their spouses simply because they knew that they were going to be on the RPF for years because nobody's on the RPF for months. No one. It's years that you're going to be on that program. And a lot of spouses just go, yeah, I don't want to wait. You know, my wife at the time did agree to wait and I, and she was one of the driving forces that actually uh, propelled me through that program because I wanted to I loved her and I wanted to get back to, to be with her. So, um, so that was one of the reasons I made it through that program in the first place. Otherwise, I might have just, you know, hit the road myself at that point. Um, anyway, so, you know, different circumstances, but there's some uh, details about it that I hope are informative to you. Alice Dare McCallum. Hi, Chris. I have a question for you. In Edinburgh, the Scientology Org is close to a mosque, which has the Mosque Kitchen Cafe attached which does an awesome curry. This got me thinking. If the Church of Scientology established a Scientology kitchen, what kind of food would they do? I'd be interested to hear what the Sea Org members eat from day to day and whether it was all the beans and rice that so many ex-Scientologists mention. All right, well, I certainly had my share of beans and rice, but that is far from all that we were served in the Sea Org. Um, and uh, other food we had, I mean, it, you know, the, the menu that we had was, uh, over the many years that I was in, was pretty much the same menu. I mean, there were a few changes over the years, but it was, you know, there was, there was eggs for breakfast, you know, mostly runny eggs and toast. Um, I, I really learned to hate eggs. It is only very recently that I've actually started eating eggs again. Um, the lunches could be anything from sandwiches to tamales to quesadillas to, you know, salad or something. Um, and uh, dinners were, you know, pizza, uh, curry, uh, burritos. The, uh, oh, yeah, the, we had uh, Burger Tuesdays. Every Tuesday for lunch, we would have burgers and fries. That was a staple thing every week, Burger Tuesday. Everybody looked forward to that. Um you know, lasagna for dinner, tuna casserole, you know, this kind of thing. Um, all, all cooked and prepared and served in a galley setting, okay? Not individual settings. So 
you know, you're being served food that is being mass produced for like a thousand people at a shot, right? And it's being served in, in trays and you're, and you go, the, the, the way the system was set up is, is, is one person from the table, uh, would go and, you know, get food for the table and bring it back to the table. And then everybody would, would eat from there. Or, you know, that, that was the, that was how the system was supposed to run more often than not. We would all go up and get our own individual serving. Uh, from the you know the chow line so to speak right it was a kind of a, a, a line of food and salad and that sort of thing and then we would serve be served water or maybe juice uh, milk at breakfasts you know um, and that was kind of our food it wasn't great it wasn't always bad I mean I really liked the lasagna and I I you know everybody looked forward to the burgers and stuff and sometimes we would have veal parmesan or something like that again none of this was really super fancy but it but it was good it was all right uh, I hated the curry hated it hated the salads didn't eat any of that uh, you know sometimes we'd be served chili or you know certain other things that weren't so great weren't so well prepared and in which case we'd have to go over to the the staff canteen and buy our food because uh, you couldn't, you weren't supposed to go off base to the local Wendy's or McDonald's and eat there. Plus, we didn't really have a lot of money to do that anyway. So, that was kind of the food situation. It wasn't, you know, anything wonderful. The beans and rice would happen. I, for me, in the 17 years I was in, it was infrequent. Um, nobody liked it. Nobody liked dishing it out. Nobody liked eating it. Right? From beans and rice was always just a, a, a torment. And it was mainly because there was not enough money to pay for the food, right, that was being served by the galley, or the organization in question was in a lower condition, it was being punished, it was a punitive action. And I never really saw beans and rice go on at any one time longer than a week. Uh, because the orgs hated it, and if an org was assigned beans and rice, they would do anything to get out of that situation as quickly as possible. So, um, so that would def that would definitely it was a punitive measure that that did work, uh, but it, it was punitive. It was horrible. It was a torturous thing, right? I'm not not in any way condoning it or saying it was a good idea. It's just just telling you how it was. So there you go. Metin Idine. I've read that psychs, psychiatrists and psychologists, are evil beings who have come to Earth from the planet Farsec and have a few questions in relation to that. I find the claim as improbable and ridiculous as the Xenu myth and wonder why Scientology critics give it relatively little attention. Are Scientologists high and low aware that Hubbard said this? Or is it a secret revealed at some late OT level like the Xenu myth? Is that info booby-trapped, and is it supposed to result in death should it be known prematurely? How would a Scientologist react to non-Scientologists questioning the psych Farsec myth? I suppose all the Scientology-produced information, exhibitions, etc. omit all information about the psych's true origins, right? Will a Scientologist sit at a table with a psych? Do Scientologists believe that the psychs are aware they are in reality an alien sent here to keep man enslaved? All right, well, you're asking all about this. And, and uh, here's the, let me quell a lot of this right away by telling you that it is not, this is not information that's given on the OT levels. There's, there's nowhere in any of the public materials of Scientology is this Farsec psych origin story given. Okay, it is a very, very 
rare issue. It's very hard to find, okay? It's an advice letter that Hubbard wrote that only high-level Sea Org members are ever going to come anywhere near. The whole time I was in Scientology, I never heard this. I only found out about it after I got out. Um, I had heard about some other things, but I'd never heard about this. And, uh, and when I read it, of course, I went, yeah, sure, that's, that's Hubbard. <laughs> that makes sense, right? But it wasn't uh, something that I was ever going to be exposed to because it was a confidential advice letter, right? That, that Hubbard, uh, I don't know who he even wrote it for uh, because I never saw it when I was in the church. But he certainly didn't write it for general issue because it's not well known. So you're not going to find most, and, 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 and most Scientologists are never going to find out about it. So, so, the, so to answer your questions about Scientologists, you know, will they sit at a table with a psych? Yeah, sure, sure they will. They, that, you know, no, no Scientologist is happy about psychology or psychiatry. They, they, they hate it. And they don't want to be anywhere near it. And they don't, you know, they're not going to, like, have friends who are psychologists or psychiatrists for the most part. Unless they're a very enlightened Scientologist who just thinks Hubbard and Miscavige are full of it when it comes to that stuff. But that's very rare. Most Scientologists absolutely buy the whole anti-psych line. But they don't hear about the origin story, the Farsec thing, okay? They hear the CCHR stuff, the, the Museum of Death, the Industry of Death, uh, you know, how psychiatrists have been out to, you know, commit genocide in World War II and how the electric shock and brain surgery and all that stuff. That's, that's all the stuff they hear, and they hear it a lot. So, um, so you'll get Scientologists very hostile to psychology and psychiatry right off the bat. And unfortunately, this is a real problem when people come out of Scientology because they will not seek uh, counseling or care that they often need because they, you know, won't see a psych because they still have that stigma connected with them. Um, okay. No, there is no Xenu... Uh, comparative here as far as if you learn about Farsec before you're ready, then you're going to die. That's no part of it, okay? It's literally just being exposed to the written issue that Hubbard wrote about it and having availability to, to, to see that issue, okay? And that, that doesn't happen very often. So, uh, like the whole time I was in, I think I met a handful of people who got anywhere near that issue, so, um, anyway, that's pretty much all I can say about that, uh, and I hope that answers your questions about it. Alright, it's time for Flash Answers. Tom Graham. Hi Chris. When you are in Scientology, you amass lots of written material concerning your personal details, such as preclearance, ethics folders, etc. If you leave Scientology for whatever reason, can you demand all personal details concerning you be kept or disposed of as you see fit? Is there any difference between United States and United Kingdom law? No, you cannot see that information or have access to it. It is not yours. You sign legal documents when you first get into Scientology and periodically throughout your time in Scientology, clearly and repeatedly stating that those preclear folders, ethics files, and every other file that Scientology has on you is their property, not your property, and you do not have any rights to any part of its ownership. 
And that is made uh, very, very clear in the documents you sign. And I don't believe there's any difference in the documents as far as uh, UK versus United States. Uh, if there are, then they changed whatever wording they needed to in the documents so that they are legally binding because it takes an act of God in order to get those things out of the church after you leave. I only know one person who's done it. Lisa Ebbs. How many OT8s are still practicing Scientology? I have absolutely no idea, but given that there have only been maybe 1,000, maybe two at the most, at the most, I don't think it's even a thousand OT8s. Um, you know, how many are left? A couple hundred? I mean, there have been a lot of defections and people, of course, have died uh, since OT8 was released in the late uh, 80s. So, um, so not a lot. I don't think there's tons and tons of OT8s still in the church. I'd say, I, if I had to be pinned down to a number, I'd say, you know, 200. Mr. Marathon 1989. Does anyone care about Mark Rathman's ridiculous attacks on Tony Ortega? Quote, backpage Tony, end quote. In a word, no. Marty Rathman has made himself wholly and completely irrelevant at this point, and I don't think anybody really cares too much about anything he has to say. Okay, that's our show for this week. Please leave any questions, comments, or feedback in the section, in the comment section there below. Thank you very much for coming around, and I will see you next week. Bye-bye.